Welcome to TheOpenWord.org, featuring the teaching ministries of Alan Schaefer. Currently, Alan is serving as an adjunct professor of theology at Moody Bible Institute, as well as leading almost weekly classes with his local church. With over 3,000 hours of recording since 1988, TheOpenWord.org contains theological studies, biblical surveys, homemade videos, and even small glimpses into Alan's personal life. We invite you to a source for verse-by-verse exposition of nearly the entire Holy Bible at TheOpenWord.org. Thank you. Welcome to our first lesson in the book of Romans. This is going to be a multi-year study in the book of Romans as we examine this great book verse-by-verse. Today we're going to be looking at introductory materials and getting a general overview of the book. So join us as we begin today's study. Yeah, but I'm glad uh, we were able to get back together here. And I've been thinking about, you know, trying to start the class back up again and waiting and waiting and waiting. And finally it's just like, well, if, if you don't do something, you're never going to do it. You know, there comes a point when you look in the mirror and say, if I don't do this, it'll never happen. So I'm glad we're able to start back up. And I thought about um, what to teach, you know, when we started back up. Um, I just started a series called The Lineage of the Messiah back in my class last time before we quit because of COVID. Um, I only got like one or two lessons in. And I was thinking about this. And what I did, one of the things you do when you're retired, I'm retired now. So one of the things you do is you have to find your, you know, stuff to do, right? Otherwise, you become a vagrant. So you gotta, you gotta, you gotta find something to do, you know. So what I did is I went back and I looked at all the materials I've done over the years, and I got um, audio recordings going back to 1988 of classes I've taught and everything. And one of the things I found very interestingly, and if somebody can get guess this, they'll get a gold star. There's one book of the New Testament I've never taught through in my entire life. In 32 years, there's one book I've never taught through. Anybody want to guess which one that is? What? Revelation. Revelation's been three times. Been through Jude. Romans. Been been through Romans. Deuteronomy. Nope. New, New Testament. Oh, New Testament. Jude. No, I've been through Jude. Corinthians. Nope. Been through Corinthians twice. Ephesians. Been through Ephesians three times. Philippians, Philippians three times. Luke. Been through Luke. Romans. What? Peter. Been through Peter twice. Romans. Been through Romans. Jude. James, been through Jude. You're running out of books. Yeah, I've taught through 26 of the 27. I taught through Matthew. Mark is the one I have never taught through. He gets the gold star. All right. Bizarrely, when I looked at all of the stuff I've taught in 32 years, I have never taught through the book of Mark. I did every other book. Um, did a lot of the books of the Old Testament. Never taught through Mark, so that someday I got to go through Mark just to say I got it. You know, I don't know. It's just I, I just never did it. And then the other thing I found very interesting is even though I've taught through the Book of Romans about six times in Moody Bible Institute, I have never taught it Sunday morning in church. I did actually when I first took over the Singles and Harmony class in 1988. Remember back that far. I was doing the book of Romans, so I haven't done it for 30 years on Sunday morning. So I thought, well, this is probably a good book to do. You know, I've not done it, and it's a great book, and, you know, so that's what I thought of doing is the book of Romans. So that's where we're going to be starting. 
And um, Denny will be starting a pool as to how long it will take to get through this book. Um, it's going to take a while. It's going to take a while because... Yeah, I, I know. <laughs> I remember a few years ago, Bart Mercurio was in, he was in the class, and um, I was going through, I forget what book of the Bible we were working through, and I had a three-week vacation. He came back, and I was, he said, you know, this is awesome. He says, I can go on a three-week vacation, come back, and you're only in the next verse. <laughs> he said, maybe you should not call it verse by verse, you call it phrase by phrase or word by word, you know. Um, but the way it works is we start in chapter 1, verse 1, and each week we see how far we get. And then we pick up the next week and just keep going and however long it takes, it takes. Um, I get paid the same amount of money whether I get through it in one week or ten weeks, so it doesn't matter to me. Um, and also, uh, in the class, feel free to ask questions and dialogue. That's part of the learning process. Um, I will be up here and I can be a talking head for an hour, but uh, it's more fun if you argue or discuss. Um, that's more fun because you learn things. I, I don't do handouts, you know. Um, but what we do is we just do a verse by verse through the book of the Bible. So that's where we're headed. Um, we'll start at 9.15. We'll try to get out of here at 10.30 or before that. I don't have a watch, so and there's no clocks. Well, there's a clock over there. I can see it. So, okay. Um, the clock over there. So we'll be out by then. Um, I can see the I can see the top part of it right now. That's what I can see, you know. So, yeah. So um, I'll, I'll, we'll try to get out of here by that time. If we start at 9:15, that lets you do you know the stuff out front, and Denny does like greet the greeting and and host yeah. hospitality, get back here, get your coffee, and whatever, and then you can get out of here and be back up there for the next service. So that'll work out well. I'm going to try to see if I can get this door open back here. Um, you know, the school controls that now, so it's like, I don't know if we can do that, but we'll see what we do. And um, can you all hear me all right? Because I got a little PA system here we can turn on that might help, because you got the, a lot of the noise with the, is that better? Yeah, because you got a lot of noise with the background here. Yeah, well, it's all, well he's a Baptist, you know, I got to sit in the back seat, you know. That's all right. Yeah, you, you know, somebody's got to sit back there, right, Eric? Yeah. Somebody's always got to do that, so that's fine. <laughs> yeah. So let's open up, or turn on or open up your Bibles to the book of Romans. Um, I'm a technical geek, so I got it on my iPad here, but uh, some people like paper, which is fine. And uh, we're going to start the book of Romans. Um, of all the books of the New Testament, probably the book of Romans is the one that you really don't want to miss as a Christian. Um, you got the Romans road. Um, you've got just so much theology in the book of Romans. Um, for a new Christian, I would probably suggest you work through the Gospel of John and then the book of Romans. Because if you can nail Romans down, it makes a lot of the rest of the New Testament pretty easy to go through. And I was just thinking this on the way to church this morning, that there's 12 major Bible doctrines. When you look at a systematic theology, there's 12 of those, 12 doctrines 
major doctrines. And all of them are developed in the book of Romans, interestingly enough. You have the doctrine of the Bible. What is that? That's the bibliology they call it, doctrine of the Bible. And right at the beginning, Paul talks about how in the Holy Scriptures, the gospel was presented in the Old Testament. You go back to the Old Testament, you see the gospel. All right? Um, so you got the doctrine of the Bible. you got doctrine of God the Father, theology proper. Who is God? What did he do? His election. You've got Christology, the doctrine of Christ, with the person and work of Christ. That's throughout the book of Romans. In fact, many times when you're teaching Christology, you spend a lot of time in the book of Romans because that's where a lot of the good stuff is about what Christ did. The doctrine of the Holy Spirit, pneumatology. What does the Holy Spirit do? Uh, Romans chapter 8, we are sealed by the Spirit. We, the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Romans 12, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are there. You have the doctrine of Satan, demon, and angels. That, that's hidden on in here. You've got the doctrine of man. Where does man, who are we? Why are we in the mess we're in? The doctrine of sin. Romans 5, why are we in the mess we're in? Why do we need a Savior? It's all there. And then the doctrine of salvation, the greatest of all. How is it that we're made right with God? What has God done to fix our problem? How is that accomplished? Um, Jack mentioned the Romans road. You know, it's right here, and the, the, one of the clearest presentations of the gospel is the Romans road. You know, Romans 3.23, 5.8, Romans 10, Romans 6.23. Those are the ones I remember when I was growing up, those four major verses. Um, you've got the doctrine of end times, right? Romans 9, 10, 11. What is, you know, the doctrine of uh, the, the times of the Gentiles and how God has set aside Israel for a period of time so he will work through the, Gentile, the church, but then there's coming a point when God will once again turn to the Jews. You got the doctrine of the church. We're called the called out ones, the called. The church in the New Testament is the ecclesia, the called out ones. We're called out. We're the church. So all of these doctrines are seen in the book of Romans. And so as we work through our work through Romans, we're going to be hitting a lot of these, and maybe we take a couple of rabbit trails here and there to talk about some of these doctrines, but it all comes out of the text of the book of Romans. So what do we know about this book? Well, very early on, um, almost universally, early church fathers described this book to Paul. Now, here's the problem. When we, when we, when we pick up the book of Romans, we say Paul is servant of Jesus Christ, we just assume that the Bible means what it says, right? We don't question it. But if you go to a secular university, of course, you don't believe that at all. You've got to make something up or else you don't get PhDs and tenure at these colleges and things like that. But very early on, you have people like Clement of Rome, Justin Motter, Hippolytus, Polycarp, Ignatius. These are the big, you know, um, early church fathers, all of them said book, Paul wrote this book. They ascribed this book to Paul the Apostle who wrote it. Um, and it's really, it's not even questioned by the early church. No one in the early church ever questioned that Paul wrote this book. In fact, the two, two of the books that, that rarely do you have any debate on as far as authorship is Romans and Galatians. Galatians is sort of like a Cliff Notes version of Romans, if you want to look at it that way. But both of these books, hardly anybody ever says, well, we don't know who wrote Romans. Almost everybody, even the secular scholars, admit that this probably was most likely written by Paul, and we know it was written by Paul. And who was it written to? It was written to the believers in Rome. He says that, right? Paul to the believers in Rome. 
And of course, the first question you ask is, who founded the church in Rome, right? Because as you go through the book of Acts, you find Paul doing all of these missionary journeys. And when did Paul finally get to Rome in the book of Acts? When did he finally make it to Rome? Right at the end, right? That's the first time he got there, all right? So evidently, Paul did not found the church at Rome, but there was a church at Rome. So the question would be, where do you think the church at Rome came from? Anybody want to guess on that? By the way, we don't know for certain, but this is our best understanding. <clears throat> what happened at Pentecost? Spirit came, you know, 3,000 people were saved. saved. And it said they were from here and here. It lists all the different places they're from. And one of them was Rome. So most likely, the church at Rome was started by Christians who came back from Palestine and went back to Rome. We don't know exactly when it started. But most likely, it was believers who returned to Rome after Pentecost. And then the question would be, well, what was the main constituency of that church, do you think? Rome is a Gentile city, right? So who do you think was mainly part of that church? Gentiles or Jews? Probably Gentiles. Probably Gentiles. We don't know, but most, mainly, mainly it was Gentiles. There were Jews there, but mostly Gentiles. It was a Gentile city. Wasn't Paul a citizen of Rome? Yeah, he was a citizen of Rome because he was born in Antioch. And the way he became a citizen in those days is if you were born in certain cities, you were an automatic citizen. Or you could purchase a citizenship for a lot of money. It was quite expensive to get one. But he was a citizen of Rome. No, it wasn't like we have today where if your parents are citizens, you're a citizen. I don't think that's the case. I know if you're born like in Antioch, Syrian Antioch was one of those cities that if you were born in that city, you were an automatic citizen of Rome. Um, I think Ephesus was one of those cities. They had a few of those that if you were born in that city, you were a citizen. Um, and then if you, you could buy, if you're not born in Rome or whatever, in, in you know, the Roman capital, you could purchase your citizenship. All right. In fact, one, remember one of the guys says, he asked Paul, so how are you a citizen? Because I had to purchase mine with a lot of money. And Paul says, well, I was born a citizen. All right. But uh, it's probably mainly Gentile believers there in Rome. Um, it was certainly a mixed church, Jews and Gentiles there. All right. And uh, that's about as much as we know about the beginnings of the church at Rome. We don't know much more than that. When was it written? Probably somewhere in the A.D. 56, 57 time frame, about somewhere around in there. Now, when was Christ crucified? What year? Approximately. 33-ish. All right, somewhere around in that time frame. We don't know the exact year. All right, it's A.D. 32, 33, probably one of those years there. Um, and then Paul was called to be a missionary or an apostle 13 years after that, A.D. 45, 46-ish time frame is when Paul had his first missionary journey. And where did he go? He went to Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. By the way, there's two Antiochs, so you don't get confused. There's an Antioch in Asia Minor, which is Turkey. There's another Antioch in Syria. There's two of them.
to have any core relationship with Christ, they still kept uh, the marker in between the same. They're sort of stuck with that, aren't they? Now, when I went to school, it was called CE and BCE. You know, they want to get the Christ out of it. So, so if you read a lot of like secular books, they'll call CE for Common Era, which is now, and BCE is before Common Era. But look, you know, Christ is the central hinge of all of history. All right? And even the secular people are stuck with that, you know, to some extent. Um, but probably right around AD 56, 57 is when Paul wrote this. And it was written from Sincrea. Sincrea, if you, if you, I can't draw a map or anything like that, but if you, if you, if you remember Greece, you got that little Peloponnesus down here and then got a little like sliver of land and then you got Greece. If you look at your map, okay, you got Greece, okay? And on that little Peloponnesus, which is, I, I can't remember how wide it is, like 20 or 30 miles, that's out of the dusty recesses of my brain. Um, there's a little isthmus there. <clears throat> and <clears throat> on one side of that was Corinth, on the other side was Sincrea. All right, so they were two sister cities. And they had a canal way there and a, and a, and a way to take ships from Corinth and they would drag them across the land and drop them in the sea on the other side. So instead of having to sail all the way around, they would just drag you across the little isthmus, which is why Corinth was such a metropolitan city, right? It was the crossroads. You had two major trade routes going through Corinth. You had the one from Greece going down to the Peloponnesus, and then you had the major trade route going across it with Sincrea and Corinth. So it was a sailor's port. I mean, it was, you know, you think of the whole sailor, you know, I mean, it was, it was bad bananas there. They had every vice known to man because it was a crossroads. And Paul wrote, wrote Rome down in Sincrea. In fact, in Romans 16.1, he talks about where he was in Sincrea, which is just, it's the sister city to Corinth, all right? And, um, and he sent it by somebody called Phoebe, who was called a servant of the church. He sent it by her back to Rome. Phoebe, a certain, Phoebe is a woman, right? So Phoebe had the privilege of taking this, probably the greatest book that Paul ever penned, and she took it back to Rome, all right? Also, we know that when Paul wrote Romans, he had not been in Rome yet. How do we know that? Well, in Romans chapter 1, he said, I wanted to come to you often, but I couldn't. I was hindered. I wasn't able to get there. He said, it's not that I didn't want to come and see you guys, it's just I've not had a, an ability or the opportunity or the means to get there at this point. Now, God took care of that later on, didn't he? <laughs> Gave Paul a free trip, you know, all-expense-paid trip via the Roman government to Rome, all right? He, God took care of that. And by the way, I love what you said there, that in my life I've seen God's leading when I look back. You ever notice that? You see God's leading mostly when you look back. Yeah, right. Oh, wow, look what happened. Boy, I didn't. You know, you don't, we don't think of the events as we're going along, but when we look back, we see how God has orchestrated all the many threads of our lives to bring us where we're at. And the older you get, I think, you see the more of those threads. I'm getting to that point where I see more of those threads <laughs> as I get older. Um, but... Uh, Paul had not been in Rome, but he said, I wanted to come and, and share with you guys. I just, sorry, I haven't had an opportunity. Um, so he writes this book back. And although he doesn't state clearly his purpose for writing the book, 
he does say, I wanted to come and visit you, and I wanted to have some gift to give you. I wanted to minister to you in some way. But I also wanted you to minister to me. And I think that's one of the great wonders of, the, um, of being a Christian. As we minister to others, what happens to us? We get ministered to as well. It's never a one-way street, is it? When you go and minister to somebody else, in essence, they're in turn ministering back to you. And what Paul recognizes, even though he was super apostle, people ministered to him. He wasn't just the one always doling it out. There's a mutuality of ministry that we have. And I've noticed that over the years. You know, as I teach a class, hopefully you're ministered to, but in turn I get ministered to. All right? Yeah. And it's not so often that we look forward and we see his hand, but yet, uh, um, for me, I think the hope is is building because when I learn of someone else going through a struggle or a trial, it's easy to say, well, be still and know that I am God, right? So we stand there and we wait and we look and we try to observe to see how God's going to work in the situation. And I think that goes into building our hope. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things I've noticed, I've seen how God's faithful to other people over the years. That gives me hope that he's going to be faithful to me too, right? And maybe sometimes, I like, I like what you said there too, that um, sometimes it's, we think we're the marquee name on the billboard, right? We think the trial is all about us, but sometimes we're just a, like a walk-on extra on the play of life. And God is using us to minister, as they observe us, to minister to them. We're not the, we think we're the central figure in all of our dramas. We're not sometimes. That makes any sense. Sometimes you're not the central figure. Sometimes you're the extra. And God is using you to display something to somebody else that they wouldn't see, and you have no idea what's going on. Think of Job. Think of the trial he went through. You know, he thinks, I'm, you know, this is all about me. What's God doing to me? And God said, Job, it's not about you. I need a 66th book in the Bible about your life. You don't know that yet, but just chill. That's the Schaefer translation of the book of Job. But, like, it's not about you, Job. And I think as I get older, I'm, I'm learning that a lot of times in life, what I go through, it's not about me. It's about what other people see in me. How do they observe my life? How, how am I impacting them? Because here's the thing. I, I, I've gotten to the point in my life where I've learned that I cannot control anybody. I can't even control myself. All right? So me trying to control somebody or control circumstances, it isn't going to work. It's frustrating. But what can I do? I can influence. I can be an influence. And you're either a positive influence or you're a negative influence. You're either going to bring people closer to Christ or you're going to be pushing them away. All right? So it's gaining a perspective beyond yourself. And Paul is saying, I wanted to come to you because I want to minister to you. 
but in turn, you're going to minister to me. It's a mutuality there. And Paul was thrilled when he saw God doing things in other people's lives. Are you thrilled when you see God doing things in other people's lives? Does that excite you to see what God's doing and how he's working things out? Because what happens is, and that disconnects you from sometimes the circumstances you're going through, and you start seeing a grander picture of what's going on. And I think every once in a while God gives us a little glimpse that there's a bigger thing going on than we can see. Because we get stuck in our own little, you know, we think our, our, all reality centers around me, and it doesn't center around me. Paul said, I want to come and minister to you. But Satan hindered me. So I'm going to write this book to you. And the Holy Spirit then took what was on Paul's heart. And what Paul wrote down was not only from his heart to these Christians to minister to them, but was from the Holy Spirit to us. That's what, that, by the way, that's the doctrine of inspiration. God breathed, the Bible is God breathed. What does it mean that we say it's God breathed? It's the breath of God, right? So is Paul sitting in Sincrea and he gets this booming voice from heaven saying, Paul, take a letter? No. But what did God do? God so worked in his heart and in his mind that as he wrote Romans, not only was Paul writing those words down, but the Holy Spirit was writing those words down. I like what Peter says. It says, holy men of God moved as they or wrote as they were moved along or borne along by the Holy Spirit. And the word there is to fill a, wind, a sail with wind. How do you move a sail, sailing boat along? You fill the sails with wind. It's like God's breath just moved them along in what they wrote so that not only was it Paul's heart to this church, but it was God's word to his universal church. That's the doctrine of inspiration. And Paul, I don't think Paul sat down and said, I'm, I'm going to write a book of the Bible. I'm going to write a book of the New Testament. What's he going to do? I'm going to write a letter to Timothy. I'm going to write a letter to Titus. I'm going to write a letter to Galatia and encourage them. I'm going to write a letter to the churches in Ephesus and talk to them. But yet, behind it all, what is God doing? God is moving Paul's mind and moving the pen and moving his heart and his thoughts and his circumstances and all of that to... To such an extent that Paul not only wrote a personal letter, but he wrote scripture to us. I think one of the reasons why we have trouble like centering on ourselves that you mentioned it is because we are finite beings instead of infinite beings. And one of the hardest concepts to try to teach somebody is truly understanding infinity. And even with it, it's kind of okay to teach or understand Okay, here and everything forward is forever. But then you realize if that's true, then everything behind is forever. And you're not the starting or the ending of anything. No. You're just on a, you know, infinity goes both directions yeah. forever. And as finite beings, as much as we try to strive to understand that, that's, it, it's still a very hard concept. Yeah. And by the way, it doesn't mean you don't try to understand, right? God does not say check your brain at the door and, you know, don't think. But there comes a point when you say, I've gone as far as I, go, I can go. I'm going to stop here and let God take it from here. Because he 
is infinite. He does see the end from the beginning. We are to try and understand things of Scripture, but there are some things in the Bible we will never understand. By the way, we're going to hit some of those here in the book of Romans. Explain election to somebody. We're going to have fun doing that one. All right? Because there's some things there that you just, after a while, you just say, okay, I quit. I'm just going to go with what it, I'm going to go with what it says and leave it there. Because the more you try to figure it out, the harder, you know, the nuttier you're going to go. But we still, by the way, we all have the Holy Spirit, don't we? So we can all learn this stuff, can't we? But there does come a point when, since God is infinite, there's going to come a point when you say, I'm not going to break beyond this because I don't have the mental capacity, the perspective to see beyond that. I'm going to trust God on this one. What did Job say? Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. He didn't have the answers, but he trusted God who did. And sometimes that's what you have to do. You have to say, I don't understand why, but I'm going to trust God that he knows what he's doing. And one of the things I found in my own life as I look back on certain events in my life that God does know what he's doing. You know, Donna passed away three years ago, my wife. And, um, you know, it's like, well, there's part of you that says, well, you know, why did God take her? But then as I look back, the more I look back, the more I see, you know, that's the best thing that could have happened. I know that sounds bizarre, but as, you look, as, I, as I process all the information, the best thing that could have happened is what happened. And I don't know why God did what he did and when he did it and how, I'm okay with that, but God had a purpose for it. And I'm okay with that. And, you know, I thought of often, you know, if God said, I'll, I'll give you a do-over on stuff, no, I don't want to do-over because I'd mess something up. One of the things I find, we get on these rabbit trails here, and that's just the way it's going to work. But one of the things I've noticed, <clears throat> I'm glad God does not answer my prayers the way I want him to answer them all the time. You ever stop and think about that? How many times do you pray and you say, okay, I know how God's going to answer this prayer. God does something like totally different than that. And you say, well, wait a minute, God didn't answer my prayer. Yeah, he did. But if he answered the prayer the way you wanted it answered, it would really mess things up. Sometimes God answers prayers the way you don't think he should answer them. But when you look back 20 years later, say, you know, that he had a better idea about how this thing should work than I do. That's part of maturing. That's part of trusting the Lord. That's part of growth. I'm glad God does not answer my prayers the way I want them answered. Think of Mary and Martha, you know, they're praying that Lazarus, he's sick, he's going to die, and, you know, Lord, come and heal him, and Christ takes his time. In the Schaefer version of the Bible, he dilly-dallied where he was until Lazarus died. And, of course, he shows up and like, why, why, why'd you, Lord, if you were here, you'd be healed. But, see, God had a bigger thing going on that they didn't see. There's something bigger than... And had God answered their prayers the way they wanted them answered, we would not have the resurrection of Lazarus in the Bible, right? Yeah, think about that. We wouldn't have that story. If he'd done it the way we wanted it done, you missed a blessing. You missed the blessing. We missed a chapter in our whole Bible. We missed John 11 is gone. Shows 
God's glory. It shows God's glory, Christ's power over death. And it's almost like a preview of Christ saying, if I can raise him, I can rise again from the dead. I mean, there's all kinds of things that went into that story that would not have happened had God answered Mary and Martha's prayer the way they wanted it answered. How about Gideon? What if God answered Gideon's prayer the way Gideon wanted to? I've got 100,000 guys, we'll go beat up 30,000. That works. God says, no, we're going to work it down to 300 against 30,000. And that way, when you win the battle, nobody's like wondering, how did this happen? Can you imagine Gideon being interviewed on CNN? How, how to work out? You know, well, you know, we did 300 guys, and we just made a lot of noise, and they went and killed themselves. Uh, they could do a commercial break really quick and go on to the next story. They wouldn't want to deal with that, right? How many times has God answered your prayers the way you think he should? Anybody have that happen? I've not been alive as a lot of you. I'm 62 now. But I've yet to see God answer a prayer the way I think he should. He always answers it. But it's better. Doesn't mean you don't ask him, right? We look upon waiting for him to do what we ask rather than seeing what he's doing. Yeah. Yep. And sometimes, you know, there have been sometimes I've gone to the Lord in prayer and said, you know, here's this issue, Father. I have no idea what to ask you about on this one here. I leave it up to you to figure this one out because I, have no, I don't even have a suggestion on this one. By the way, is it okay to pray for specific things? Well, absolutely. Christ said to pray for specific things. But let God work out the details on how he's going to work those things out. And if it doesn't work out the way you think it is, and I've often thought about this, how many times has God answered your prayer but you missed it because he didn't answer it the way you thought he should? There have been times I've prayed about things in life and I don't think God answered my prayer and then 20 years later I look back and say, you know, he did answer my prayer but it wasn't the way I thought he should have done it but he did answer. It did work out. That's part of God's sovereignty, God's providence. And again, what I'm finding is the older I get, the more I see his hand and the more I see his providence and the more I see his sovereignty in life. I look back at events in my life and say, well, if I turned left at that point instead of right, my life would have turned out completely different. Why did it work that way? It's because God had a plan and a purpose. And that's part of, you know, just living in the Spirit and just letting God lead you and guide you in life. Why did Paul, what's the purpose and plan of the book? It's to instruct the believers at Rome regarding salvation and protect them from the influence of the Judaizers. Who's the Judaizers? want to mix law and grace. Paul, he roasted them in the book of Galatians, right? In fact, Galatians is probably the, one of the earliest books that Paul wrote. Probably right around like 46, 47 AD is when Paul wrote Galatians. And he wrote it to the churches that he had ministered to on his first missionary journey. Antioch, Pisidian Antioch, by the way, it's called Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. And what happened is, if you remember his journey, missionary journey, he would go in, he preached the gospel, people would believe, and right on his tail were these guys that came along and said, yeah, 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 you're saved by faith, but you also need to, and then he adds some works onto the deal. You got to be circumcised, you got to keep the dietary laws, you got to 
do this and that and the other thing. And Paul writes Galatians and he says hi and then he immediately launches in and starts, what's wrong with you people? So having begun in the spirit, are you not perfected by the flesh? And one of the things that Paul stresses in Romans and Galatians, and you see this in the New Testament, is you can be saved by law or you can be saved by grace, but you can't be saved by both. It's one or the other. And the problem with the law is the law demands perfection, which none of us can do. So we're sort of stuck. We can't be saved by the law. But you can't take law and mix it in with grace, because if you do, what happens? It's no more grace. If you take black paint and mix it with white paint, you don't get whiter paint. You get gray paint. It doesn't mix. You can't mix the two. And Paul's going to really press in on this idea here in the book of Romans that you can't, you can't be saved by law, by law because, number one, you can't keep it. But if you're saved by grace, then you can't add law onto that to keep your salvation because it's by grace or it's by law, but it's not by both. So he has to talk about that. This is an important one. He has to explain the unbelief of Israel. Now, we're not going to get to this till a year and a half or two years from now when we get to Romans 11, where Paul talks about Romans 9, 10, 11 is very critical to the book of Romans. Because in the first eight chapters, Paul lays this foundation of salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, not by the works of the law. And if you're the average Jew listening to him talk about this, your first question is, well, wait a minute, what about all of those promises to Israel about us being God's people? What happened? Did God change his mind? Now, there are some people that say that. They say God changed his mind about Israel. They're put on the shelf permanently. They're called supersessionists. Basically, what it means is we have taken the place of Israel in the plan of God, is the idea there. Um, some call it replacement theology. Some call it covenant theology. But basically, the church is the new Israel. We are Israel, basically. But Paul, in Romans 9, 10, 11, says, listen, God understood that you were going to reject him. God knew that. Why? Because he's sovereign, right? He knows everything. But God also ordained that you would reject him. As that was part of the plan. He knew you would reject him, but he's not done with you yet. There's coming a day when God will again turn to Israel. So in 9, 10, 11, Paul is answering the objection that the Jewish readers would have. Say, wait a minute, what about us? What about all those promises to Abraham? What about the kingdom? What about the blessings of the kingdom? What about this thing that he promised that we would have a king? And a... What about that? And Paul says, he's not changed his mind. Those are still valid. And he's going to work through that in Romans 9, 10, 11. All right? So that's very important to understand. One of the ways to understand the book of Romans is Paul is answering objections that people have. He's, he's, he states something, and he says, and some might say, and then he answers that objection. All right? You see that in Romans chapter 5, you know, where he says, you know, it's all by grace, and somebody says, well, if it's by grace, then I'm just going to sin it up because if God's for, it's great for God to forgive me, I'll just sin to the, to the hilt, and that'll show God how wonderful God is to forgive me for my sin. And Paul says, no, you don't act that way. Is it true that God will forgive you all for all your sins? That doesn't mean you go out and sin to make God look good, right? Yeah, I mean, that's the point. You know, We'll make God look good by really sinning so he'll really forgive us. Paul says, what are you thinking? You don't do that. 
and he wants to encourage them to live a godly life. This is a book on how to live a godly life. There's just so, this is just so much here, you know. And even though we might spend a lot of time in it, we're just going to scratch the surface of this whole stuff because there's just so much here. So what's the outline? Well, chapter 1, chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, we sort of have the introduction to the book, some introductory things. And then in Romans chapter 1, 18 through 320, Paul lays out his, his indictment of humanity. By the way, what is the starting point of the gospel? Starting point? The starting point of the gospel, what is it? All have sinned. All have sinned. If you don't have that, you don't need a gospel, right? Yep, right? If you're not a sinner, who needs a savior? If you can save yourself, why the cross? The starting point of the gospel is all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Paul starts out his presentation, his book, by saying every one of us is sinful. Now we have a movement in so-called Christianity today where we don't want to, we downplay sin. You got a lot of false teachers on TV that say, oh, don't tell people they're sinful. You're messing up their self-esteem. You're making them feel bad. Here's the bottom line. If you don't see yourself as a sinner, you cannot be saved. What do you think Christ was doing with a rich young ruler? What was he trying to get him to understand? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, you know the law. You know, keep the law. And what was his response? Done that. What's next? Now, did he do that? No. But see, he wasn't willing to admit that. Here's the point. If you can't admit you're a sinner, you don't need a Savior. You've got to be broken in your sin before God can save you. And the starting point of every gospel presentation is you're a sinner, you're under judgment, and there's nothing you can do about it. And unless God does something, you're sunk. And Paul starts out in 1.18-3.20 to just show this from all different angles and aspects. He starts out with the heathen, the people who never know God. And he said, if you look at nature, if you look at the creation, you know there's a God out there. That, that, that enough is, is, is enough to make you guilty. He talks to the person who's educated, moral, you have the law of God written in your heart. You have a conscience that tells you there are things that are right and wrong. And when you violate that conscience, you're acknowledging that there is a God. And then he turns to the Jews and says, just because you have the Bible doesn't mean anything. And he ends up by saying, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. Their throat is like an open sepulcher. The poison of asps is under their lips. Like one of the words he uses there, hakriastune, that's a funny, that's a great Greek word. It means sour milk. He says, you're all like sour milk. What do you do with sour milk? You throw it out as quickly as you can because it's like gross. It'll stink the house up, right? He's saying, you're like sour milk. You're, you're, you're good for nothing. We got to get, get this out of here. We're all sinners. And then, but God doesn't leave us here. See, first of all, God's got to break us. And he says, okay, here's the way back. Here's the way back. And this is interesting. God has always provided a way back, hasn't he? 
But what is that way back? Who defines the terms of the way back? God does. Why does God get to define the terms? Because he's the one that's the aggrieved party, right? You don't get to define the terms of your salvation. God defines them. If I were to get really violent, and I were to beat up Denny really bad and put him in the hospital, and he's in traction with a body cast, and I go in there and say, gee, Denny, I'm sorry I lost my temper. Here's a dollar for your troubles. What do you think would happen? That ain't going to cut it, is it? Get out of here. <laughs> when I'm out of here, you're in trouble. You know? The point is, I don't get to define the terms of reconciliation. Who defines those? The grieved party defines those. God defines the terms, and God has given us his terms. And what you find is when you come to God on God's way in his terms, he's there with arms wide open and a massive smile on his face to welcome you back. But if you say, no, this is good enough, it's not going to go well for you. We see this in the garden, right? What happened in the garden? Well, Adam and Eve sinned. God made skins, took, took animals, made skins for them. They had Cain and Abel, and God gave them a way back. What was that way? What was the way you approached God? Sacrifice. You brought an animal sacrifice. And what did Abel do? Yeah, uh, God wants an animal. I'll bring the animal. What did Cain say? My vegetables are good enough. And God says, no, it doesn't work that way. And by the way, Cain knew what God wanted. It wasn't a guessing game. He knew what God wanted. He just said, I'm going to come to God on my terms. Here's our problem today. We have, thousands, we have millions of people today who want to come. They want God, but they want God on their terms. And their thinking is, well, if I come, you know, this is good enough for God. He should be happy. And the Bible says, no, it's not. God has provided a way back, but you come his way back. You don't come your own way back. And God, in, in, in chapter 3, 21 through 8, 39, Paul outlines this whole, how do I get back with God? How am I justified? It's not by what I do. Faith. It's faith. How is Abraham justified? By faith. How about David? By faith. Go to the faith chapter of Hebrews 11. Abel, by faith. Moses, by faith. Rahab, by faith. By the way, what did Rahab know about God? She knew hardly anything. She knew one thing. He destroyed the Egyptian army 40 years ago. He's powerful. I want to be on his side. That's about the extent of her theological depth. And yet, what did she do? She risked her life for that and found herself in the Faith's Hall of Fame. You come to God by faith. And here, by the way, what all faith is, you believe what God said. That's faith. He said it, I believe it. If you came here by God's creation, then that's the only way. He's, his terms are mm -hmm. set up. And that's one of the problems. I know uh, going, being young, younger when I first went to college um, and 
when we got married, I was an evolutionary atheist. Okay. Well, you came a long way. And um, and I soon realized, and finally, that the reason for evolution and the whole idea behind it was you came here some way other than by God. Right. Yes. So you it don't is. have to follow God's rules for salvation or anything. You come on your own, and that, that's really what we have. We have a world full of people who think God will accept them the way they are. Now, does God accept you where you're at? Yes, but he doesn't leave you there, does he? And you come to God on his terms. And his terms are spelled out clearly in the Bible. And if you do that, again, God is there with arms wide open, and heaven rejoices over one sinner who repents, Right? The R word. We don't want to use the R word anymore. People don't talk about repentance. Oh, you made a mistake. You, you know, you turn left, turn right. You know, but you, basically, you're good. You're okay. You know, don't worry about that. Look, the Bible says you need to repent, and so we see that in Romans eight, or you know, three through eight, and then in Romans nine, ten, and eleven, we have the objection that. Jews are going to raise, well, what about us? What about all those promises that God had for a nation for us? What happens to us? Is the kingdom gone now? Do we not get the kingdom that was promised in the Old Testament? So Paul has to deal with that question in that passage. And then in Romans chapter 12, this is the practical section. Most of Paul's letters, um, epistles, you have a doctrinal section that starts it out. Romans 1 through 12, Romans 1 through 11 is doctrine. A lot of doctrine, a lot of teaching. And then in Romans chapter 12, therefore, on the basis of what you've just learned, here's how you're supposed to live. In Ephesians, you have the same thing. Ephesians 1 through 3, doctrine. Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. Okay, now they got the doctrine out of the way. Here's, here's what it means. Therefore, Galatians the same way. Philippians the same way. A lot of the Corinthians the same way. You got doctrine, and then it's followed by, okay, now that we got the doctrine down, here's how you make that work. And that's what you see in Romans chapter 12, where what is it, now that we're justified, how are we to live? How are we to function? How are we to function to one another? How do we function to people in society? How do we, what's our, our response to government? Our duty to men, our duty to other Christians, our duty to the gospel. Those are the Romans... 13, 14, and 15. Romans 13, how, as a believer, how do I respond to the people around me, the unbelievers? Romans 14, how do I respond to other Christians, the weaker brother? What do I do? And then Romans 15, what is my duty to the gospel, the good news? And then we have the closing part of it. Key words in the book of Romans are justification and believe. 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 Justification. Diakusune, diakusune, diakusune. means to be declared righteous. It's not a process. It's an act of God whereby he declares you not guilty. Now on what basis can God declare you not guilty? By your faith and Christ's finished work, right? It's not because you are perfect, right? It's be, God says, you're acquitted. Why are you acquitted? Because Christ paid the penalty for your sin. By the way, here's another thing. 
substitution. That's falling on hard times now. You've got whole sections of supposed Christianity out there saying the idea that God would send his son to die on the cross for your sin, that's cosmic child abuse. God would never do that. The Bible says Christ took my place. He's my substitute. He died for me. All right? And by the way, did Christ go to the cross unwillingly? No. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. There's no cosmic child abuse. That's baloney. It's the greatest epistle ever penned by Paul. Again, it has theology, 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 theology in it. And so what we're going to do, we're, we'll stop here because we got a, a break point. But next week in Romans, go home and read Romans. I would just you just go home this week and every day read through Romans 1, 1 through 7. Every day this week. Take you a couple minutes. If you want to read a couple times a day, do it. And what you're going to find is like a newspaper. In a newspaper article, usually what's the first paragraph do? It sets up the rest of the article, right? It's like the Cliff Notes version of what's in the whole article, all right? So it's, it's the high level, and then that details are all filled in in the rest of the article. And that's what you're going to find here in Romans. In Romans 1, 1 through 7, Paul basically lays out in seven verses the whole picture of salvation, everything. And the rest of Romans is just to fill in all of the details of what he says in Romans 1, 1 through 7. So I would suggest you read that and, and read it and get it in your mind, because next week what we'll do is we'll start in Romans 1, 1 through 7 and start looking at this salvation. And then in the weeks to follow, we're going to start filling in the blanks from the rest of the book of Romans. So that's how we're going to go. Any questions or anything? Uh, well, I'm not all getting a handle on how you uh, present, present the scriptures. Okay. I mean, it sounded like to me you were preaching it, which was wonderful. <laughs> Get that straight. But, but you were jumping around a lot. I jump around a lot. You know, it, it's where we go. Okay. And by the way, if you know, Pam and, and Eric will tell you, we got on these rabbit trails. You know, somebody asks a question, we're off on a rabbit trail for a week. You know, that's fine. That's okay. You know, um, again, I come in here prepared to go through it, but this is your class. You know, and what I found is that as people interact and talk and they learn more than if they just sit there and just, yeah, I, I can do that. All right, I can go, but I, that's not what I'd rather do. I'd rather interact. Yeah, you know, so, but one of the things you'll find is I really stick close to the text. I mean, I'm just, my, my idea is this is what you need to learn, the Word of God. Don't listen to me. It's not my, I, you know, I'm irrelevant. This is the, why, the Scripture is what we are worried about. I think that was good. Uh, uh, it, it sounded to me like you're presenting an outline. Yes. This is an outline of what we're going to be going over in Romans, and, and therefore you're just hitting the highlights yep. of it. Sounds like jumping around, but... It was just an outline. It makes sense. It'll make sense. As we dig into it, we'll be more focused. Some days we'll go through two verses, some day three verses, some day a verse and a half, and some day maybe half a verse. It all depends on how much interaction we have. I got a question for you. Yeah. I'm related to that family. So we were in one class, you were teaching another class. There were a number of uh, uh, people that were in your class. Did you 
of, of all the people. Like Georgians, okay. Yeah. Um, we had, the, I'm, they might be here, I don't know. Yeah, Sammy has all of those. From my private pre previous class, Sammy has all the lists of everybody. Yeah. Yeah, because, you know, and, and by the way, I have no idea what to call this class. So if you have a good idea what to call us, I mean, what were you guys? Watchmen? You're watchmen, and I was verse by verse. I, if you got to come up with a new name, I don't care. It's not, no big deal to me. But if somebody has a good idea, we'll, we'll go with it and stick with it. So, But no, this is what we do here. We, we, we want to, yeah, we want to focus. My, my, my uh, allegiance is to the Word of God. It's not to me. It's not to my ideas. It's to the Bible. And by the way, you don't have to agree with me. All right? You'll find out with Sammy. All right? You don't have to agree. We don't all have to agree, but we want to interact with the text of Scripture. That's the key. So that's what we'll be doing. So let's close in prayer. And uh, Father, thank you so much for this day, for teaching us, and for this great book of Romans. Um, I sort of feel like I'm drinking from a fire hose here. There's just so much that we find here in this book. But I pray in the weeks and months ahead as we examine this book that you would guide our discussions, our thoughts, our studies, that it would change us, make us different. Thank you for providing a way back to you. Thank you for giving us a salvation that is there and that someday we can stand in your presence and enjoy your company forever. Father, thank you for this day and for the service to head. I pray that you just uh, meet us there as well. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.